We're going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning. When I was a seminary student, for a couple of years, I was a grader for a Bible study methods class. And the professor that I worked for uh, had been at the seminary as a professor for around 50 years already when I started working for him. So he was kind of a legend, not only on campus, but just amongst uh, the pastors, 10,000 plus pastors. Uh, some of you will know the name, Howard G. Hendricks. Some of you will not know the name, but man, I was so excited. I had the privilege to just, just even work for this guy a little bit. I was the grader for one of his classes. And uh, I will never forget the very first conversation that I had with him as his grader. Uh, he came up uh, to me and he kind of, he had an interesting way of speaking that I can't really imitate, but he goes, he goes, hey, I hear we're going to be working together. So glad to work with you. Uh, and, and he says, let, let me tell you something though. He goes, son, don't let the students give you any gas. That's what he said. I remember him still saying that. And I was like, I don't know, what do you mean? You know, I, I'm thinking like, what do you mean by that? He goes, look, I've done this a long time. He says, I've heard every excuse in the book for why they don't turn in the work or why the, the work wasn't what it was supposed to be. He goes, if, if anybody gives you any trouble, anybody gives you any problems, you just send them to me and I'll straighten them out. And I remember thinking, you know, how bad could it be? I mean, these are seminary students training to be pastors <laughs> and ministry leaders. Well, it turns out that his advice was very needed and very true. Man, over the next two years of grading for him, I heard every excuse in the book. The biggest one was uh, the instructions weren't clear, so I didn't deserve that grade. And uh, that, sometimes that was true. The instructions could be hard to understand, but that's why I was there was for them to come ask me if they had problems. I had people that said, look, I got all A's in my undergrad in Bible college, therefore the problem must be you. I had people say things like, you graded what I wrote, that's not what I meant. I don't know how I was supposed to know <laughs> the difference. I forgot it was due. I mean, I heard every excuse in the book. And sometimes people would get really upset at me. I even had a few people call me names or write me really angry emails when they got an 8 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10 on an assignment. And I always wanted to say to them, I doubt anybody once you graduate from this place will care. Right? And it's true. Nobody, none of y'all know what my grades were in seminary. Right? But there's something within us when we feel that we've been confronted with our own shortcomings, our own failures, uh, we, we get defensive. All of us, if that's true of seminary students training to go into the ministry, how much more might that be true of, of people like you and me, right? We all tend to get defensive to throw up excuses. This is true not only in daily life, not only in an academic context. It also uh, tends to be true in our relationship with God. That all of us, when we are faced with our shortcomings and our failures and our sins, our inability or unwillingness to believe God or obey Him, there's something within us that wants to make excuses. But, I don't have enough information. But, I tried really hard. But, this was really difficult for me to do. Whatever it may be, we tend to throw up excuses. And here's the reality, though. That for, for uh, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, as you, as you look at the reality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, 
one of the facts about the gospel that we have to grapple with is that the gospel will destroy all of our excuses for our sins and our shortcomings and our failures. In fact, at the heart of the gospel message has to be an acknowledgement first that I am in need of the grace of God because I am a sinner, because I have rebelled against God, because I have failed to trust and obey God as he's called me to do. And so the gospel has a tendency to destroy any excuse we may want to toss up for why we aren't good enough, why we didn't believe in Jesus, whatever it may be. At the heart of the gospel is this reality. I cannot be good enough. I'm already not good enough in order to earn eternal life, in order to make myself right with God. This theme permeates the writings of the apostle Paul, especially Paul was captivated and gripped by the reality of the grace, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God upon sinners. And when he encountered the grace of God, that became the the foundation of his life, the foundation of his hope, but also the focus of his ministry. So that's why you have passages like the famous Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where, where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Nobody will be good enough. Nobody will have excuse. Nobody will have a a way to stand before God and say, I did this myself. I earned eternal life. And the scripture is clear, in fact, that the only way to receive the grace of God and to receive eternal life is through Jesus. You have to believe In Jesus, Acts 4.12, Peter says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the, the scripture is clear that all of us need the grace of God. There's no excuses. There's no way to earn God's favor. There's no being good enough. And the only way to receive the grace of God is by going through Jesus. So this concept has been really at the heart of the book of Romans as we've studied the book of Romans over the course of the last year. All of us are sinners. No excuses before God. All of us need the grace of God. But God in Jesus Christ has offered infinite grace to everyone who will believe in Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead to offer eternal life. Now, when we got to Romans 9 last week, we saw that this message of the gospel that Paul says was offered through Jesus, a Jewish man, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, this message of the gospel posed a dilemma when we think about the nation of Israel. And you remember, if you were with us last week, the challenge was, okay, if Jesus is a Jewish man who is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he came, as Paul says in Romans 1, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or to the Gentile, Why is it that most of the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah? And if you remember, if you followed with us in Romans 9, we said God has a plan to draw men and women to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the Jews and from among the Gentiles. But God has not chosen every Jew or every Gentile. Remember, so we talked about the sovereignty of God. We talked about the election of God, the choice of God. And the idea is God's sovereign choice is good, and we can trust it. And so God's plans have not failed. God's plans are still on track. 
God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and he will harden whom he will harden. And what we also saw was that there is a tension written into the scripture between the sovereignty of God, the choice of God, and the responsibility of mankind to believe. And what Paul does and what the writers of the scripture do is they lay these, these two concepts side by side, often without trying to resolve the tension for us. God is in control. God elects. And yet, we are held accountable to believe. And so what we're going to see now in Romans 10 is that those who might say, well, okay, if God chooses and God elects and God is sovereign, uh, then why am I still responsible to believe, right? Maybe there's not enough information. Maybe belief is really too hard. Maybe it's all wrapped up in the mystery of God. Why am I responsible to believe? What we're going to see is that in Romans 10, Paul will systematically eliminate our excuses to say the gospel is good news that destroys every excuse we may have. That yes, God is sovereign. And yes, men and women are still held accountable to believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to eternal life. And that is right, and that is just, and that is the way God designed it. And so Romans 10 fundamentally is a discussion of why is everyone held responsible for believing in Jesus from among the Jews, from among the Gentiles. Paul will focus on the Jewish people and he's gonna say that the nation of Israel has no excuse for not believing in Jesus. But by extension, and he's gonna say this later, neither do you, neither do the Gentiles, neither do I. Nobody will stand before God on the day of judgment and be able to say, but I didn't know, but I tried really hard, but you should have made this easier. And I think this is really applicable for you and me, wherever you are spiritually, because it may be, uh, first of all, that there's somebody in this room that you're like, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I come to church. I read my Bible. I sing the songs. I try really hard. And the scripture will say, no, no, no. Those objections will not be sufficient on the day of judgment if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone. For those who know Jesus Christ, a lot of times we think about, hey, what about the, like, the nice guy next door that spends his weekends helping old ladies across the street with their groceries? Surely that guy deserves to get in without going through Jesus. What about the really religious person? Maybe, maybe they, they are uh, in a Christian church or maybe it's a really religious Muslim or Buddhist or whatever and they, they go through all of the, the steps of religion and they're trying really hard to find God. Paul's gonna say, no, not even your religious zeal can save you. All that can save is believing in Jesus Christ and that is just and it is right and there are no excuses. All are held accountable. So why is everyone held responsible to believe in Jesus. This is where we're going to go in Romans 10. I'm actually going to start in chapter 9, verse 30. So follow with me if you have your Bible. Chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So you see the dilemma, right? The Gentiles found the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. But he says the Israelites are trying really hard to make themselves right with God, and they didn't get there. So what do we do about that dilemma? Why did that happen? Verse 32. Well, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. All right, keep going into chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So why is everyone held responsible to believe? Paul tells us, first of all, because zeal is not enough. Religious zeal, hard work is not enough. And you understand, again, the dilemma he sets up. He's like, look, if anybody is zealous, if anybody's trying to do what's right, if anybody's trying to obey the law, certainly it's the nation of Israel. And here you have the Gentiles who who seem to have sort of stumbled their way into Jesus and eternal life, and the Jews who have not believed, and therefore they're not accepting Jesus. And he goes, why is that? Well, it's because, he says right now, The nation of Israel has focused on trying to build their own righteousness through what they do rather than trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They've worked really hard, but in the wrong direction, toward the wrong goal, toward establishing their own righteousness rather than submitting to God's. Let me illustrate it this way. Last year in San Antonio, there was a couple that came home one day to their house, and they found that their house had been painted partially yellow. Now, uh, you know, it's a pretty color. It looks like actually it was done relatively well. Parts of the house were painted yellow. Uh, The problem was they had not hired anybody to paint their house yellow. And so they they were puzzled. What is going on? So they looked at their doorbell camera, and they saw on their doorbell camera a truck pull up. These Guys get out with all their painting supplies. They paint for hours, three, four, five hours. They get it all prepped. They begin to paint, and then they get in their truck all of a sudden, and they go away. And and they're certain that what happened was that there was a group of men who had been hired to paint a house, but not this house. And so at some point, they realized they were painting the wrong house, and I guess rather than uh, remedy the mistake, they just got in the truck and took off. And so these people were like, can they come back, please, and make our house the right color or at least finish the yellow? And this family was upset. Why? Well, a lot of work was done. That's a lot of energy and work, isn't it? A lot of energy expended toward the wrong goal, in the wrong direction. So they didn't get credit. They can't come back and be like, hey, but we worked really hard except the yellow house, right? That's not how it works. Hard work alone is not enough if it's expended in the right direction. This is why Paul says, look, the the nation of Israel, they worked really hard to follow the law. But what they didn't understand was that the law was never designed to bring salvation. And so he says, look, they're running along this pathway of law-keeping, and Jesus is right in the pathway. In other words, God sends Jesus to offer them eternal life because Jesus now perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died for our failure to fulfill the law, and then he rose again, defeating the penalty of death 
and of sin for everybody who will trust in him. So here's Jesus now saying, look, come to me. So they're running along this pathway of law keeping. And he says what they did is they just kept trying to run along that pathway. And they actually tripped over Jesus and fell down. He became the stumbling stone. And he says what it was meant to be is that Jesus is the end of the pathway of law keeping for all who will have faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot of debate. If you read commentaries, scholars debate uh, when it says he's the end of the law. This word, it's telos. It could mean he's the goal of the law or it could mean he's the termination of the law. In other words, that Jesus is where the law was always leading or that Jesus is the end of a life of trying to earn God's approval by works. And so people argue, which is it, the, the, the goal or the, the termination? My answer is, I think it's both. And I think Paul utilizes this word deliberately because it's a little ambiguous. And here's what I mean. He says, on the one hand, Jesus is the, the, where the law is leading all along. That the law was meant to highlight the fact that we need the grace of God. That all of us will stand before God without excuse for our sin, for our disobedience, for our failure. All of us need the grace of God. So that Paul in Galatians, he would say, therefore the law has become what? It's a tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ. Christ is the goal. Christ is where the law was leading. To reveal that we need a savior so that we may be justified by faith, made right with God by believing in Jesus. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law revealed God's standards of holiness and demonstrated we couldn't get there apart from his grace, and Jesus is where it was all leading. But Jesus is also the termination of the law for those who believe in him. No longer do we have to strive in order to earn God's approval. That was never the way it was meant to work. And so Paul says, here's Jesus standing on the path, and the nation of Israel was trying to establish their own righteousness by law keeping. And he says, look, zeal is not enough. It's not enough to just work hard. It's not enough to be a nice person. It's not enough to be really religious. It's not enough because you can never achieve the righteousness of God on your own. So we have to go through Jesus. So, so again, this is the first excuse that Paul knocks down. Why are we held responsible? Well, your zeal is not enough. You cannot stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I was really good. I tried really hard. I prayed 18 times a day. I helped my neighbor with their groceries. I gave a lot of money. I really tried hard to be religious. That excuse will not cut it. And so where Paul now is gonna take us next is this, this natural response to that idea that I can't be good enough by following the law, by works, the natural response somebody might have to that is, well, well man, the way of faith then is, is pretty tough to swallow because believing in Jesus is gonna kill my pride and it's gonna overturn the way of life that I have become accustomed to by law-keeping and by striving and by trying to earn God's approval, right? It's gonna undo everything that I understood about my life, especially for a religious Israelite who grew up obeying the law. And so the next objection somebody might make is, man, this way of faith is really too difficult. Why didn't God make this simpler, easier? 
less difficult to accept and believe. So this is where Paul's going to take us next. Not only is zeal not enough, but he's going to say, no, no, no. Faith is not too difficult. The way of believing in Jesus, in fact, is easier than the pathway of the law. Look at uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what Paul is getting at. Believing in the message of the gospel is as simple as simple could be. And, and, and we have a tendency to think, yeah, but, but being a good person, that's the way I was raised, that's the way I grew up, that's what I know. Now you're, you're saying, hey, I need to set all that aside when it comes to earning eternal life and simply believe in Jesus. That's hard to swallow. Right, but, but, but Paul here, he goes on, he goes, look, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, if you want to make the law the standard for how God accepts you, then you've got to live by that. And nobody can. But he says, look, here's what the gospel says, the way of faith says. I don't have to climb up to heaven to try to get Jesus and bring him down. Why? He already came down to me. I don't have to crawl under the ground to the abyss to go bring Jesus back up from the dead because Jesus already rose from the dead. Jesus did all the work. Paul is here quoting, by the way, from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Right before Moses died, he reiterated the law to the nation of Israel. And he said, when God has revealed himself to us, God hasn't tried to be tricky, right? God's not trying to to hide himself. God's not trying to make this difficult. It's plain as the nose on your face that God has made his revelation clear to you and me. So you don't have to try to climb up to heaven to get it. God brought it down. You don't have to go down under the ground into the grave to try to get it. God has brought it to you. It's right there. It's near you. It's on your lips and it's in your heart. The problem that Israel faced was not that God failed to provide enough information. It wasn't lack of information on God's part. It was lack of affirmation on their part. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of belief. Because the way that they wanted to follow was by striving and trying to keep the law. And many many of us are, are no different from that. The issue is not lack of information, lack of resources, lack of ability. The issue is lack of belief, resistance, and unwillingness to engage with the revelation that God has given in Jesus. Uh, When I was a young adult, um, for a little while, I was a tutor for high school students in like chemistry and math and uh, even some SAT tutoring and things along those lines. 
Um, and uh, I remember there was this one student, probably more than one, but this one young man in particular, he was a sophomore in high school. And I remember that I would go over to his home and, you know, it seemed like he lived in a nice home, nice parents. I mean, they paid for a tutor for school and the whole deal. And uh, I would say, okay, let's work on your homework. So we would pull out, I think it was the geometry homework. And I'd say, all right, what do you got? And it was always like a blank page. There was nothing there. His name would be at the top. He hadn't begun it. I'd be like, okay, let's, let's work through these problems. And we would get to problem one. And he would say, can you just, can you do this, you know, so I can understand it? Like one. So I would do, I'd do one problem. I'd be like, all right, let me, let me walk this through. Now problem two. And he, he would always, like on problem two, he'd be like, hey, can you do that one too? Right? And I would, I would kind of push back and be like, no, I'm not going to do all of them. The point is not for me. To, I already went through high school geometry. The point is for you to learn the material. And then at some point, he would invariably go, I can't do it. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too difficult. I can't understand it. I, I, I'm not smart enough, whatever it is. And he would start giving all of these objections, and I would always say, you can. You haven't tried. You haven't engaged. All the information is there. You have a textbook. You have a teacher. You have a tutor. You've got assignments. You've got parents who want to help you. All of the resources are there. The problem is not lack of information, lack of resourcing. The problem is something in your heart says, I will not engage. I will not hear. I will not go there. This is what Paul says is the dilemma of the nation of Israel, and I think it's the dilemma of most of the human race. It seems counterintuitive to say, I cannot get there on my own, so I have to trust in the grace of God. It's hard, not because faith itself is difficult, but because my pride gets in the way. And so Paul says, you have to understand God has made this unbelievably simple. He sent Jesus Christ down. Jesus rose from the dead. And then he goes on and, and using this language of Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 says, look, the, the word of God, it's near you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart. So he says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is not giving two separate steps here for salvation, by the way. He's not suggesting that, okay, you need to believe and then you need to like come into some ceremony and be like, Jesus is Lord, right? That's not what he's saying. But instead, he's saying confession and belief are, are really one and the same. This Greek word confession, it often simply means to agree, that I agree that Jesus is Lord. I believe it in my heart. If I believe it in my heart, it is almost certain at some point to come out of my mouth. But the idea is there is no complex set of steps. I don't have to do a ritual. I don't have to, to do a bunch of works. There's no supernatural activity I have to do. All I have to do, he says, is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It is that simple. The gospel is not complicated. God has put, for lack of a better way to say it, God has put the cookies on the lowest shelf possible. So easy, so simple. Simply believe in Jesus. When I was seven or eight years old, my older brother founded a club in our neighborhood. I don't remember what it was called, but what I do remember was that he, he invited some of his friends to get in, and then I said, can I join the club? And all of a sudden, there was a complex series of steps required to initiate me into his club. I remember this because one of the steps was I had to eat a, a mud pie, which was exactly what it sounds like. It was a cup filled with mud from the backyard. He's like, okay, eat this. 
right? I had to walk along a narrow set of stones, of paving stones uh, in the backyard and not fall off. I did fall off and I, I actually still have a scar to this day from where I cut my ankle falling off trying to get into his club. He had four or five complicated, difficult steps. I had it better than our other younger brother who wasn't even invited to try. <laughs> but a lot of times we're tempted to think, hey, pleasing God, knowing God, receiving eternal life, it's like that, right? There's all these steps, all these things you gotta do. Paul says, no, 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 to receive eternal life is simple. It's not like that. Believe in Jesus. God made it plain. God made it clear. God is always reaching out. Call upon the name of the Lord. Faith is not too difficult. Nobody will stand before God and say, it's just, it was too hard. You didn't give me what I need. There is no excuse. And so all are held responsible. I have known people who have not trusted in Jesus that when I say, why do you not trust in Jesus for eternal life? I've known one or two that have, that have said things like this. Well, I wish that I could muster up your level of faith, but I just can't. I, I don't have that much faith. I'm not a faithy person. Right? And Paul would say, it's not about the, the amount of your faith. It's not about your confidence in your own ability to believe. It is simply about, do you believe in what Jesus has done? That he died for your sins and he rose from the dead to offer eternal life. Faith is not a thing we have to muster up. It is simply a trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Paul says, that's not difficult. It's as simple as simple could be. Right, so, so then the, the last excuse that somebody might raise, at least from this passage, is that, well, okay, uh, zeal might not be enough and I need the grace of God and faith might be, be easy to do, right? It might be easy to receive Jesus, but I don't have enough information. If God wanted me to believe in Jesus, he would have made it clearer. He would have revealed himself in plainer terms, given me more evidence. And so in the last part of Romans 10, Paul goes on and he says, look, ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. Look at verses 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, I will, will I anger you? And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Paul begins this last section with a series of rhetorical questions designed to shoot down the objection that I can't believe in Jesus because I don't have enough information. So he says, look, 
uh, people can't call on him. If calling on the name of the Lord is what's necessary for salvation, believing in Jesus, how can they do that if they haven't believed, right? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? He goes, look, the the implication is, look, surely if people heard the message from, from preachers, they would believe. And he goes, hey, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news of good things. By the way, metaphorical, I will never preach barefoot because my feet are not literally beautiful, right? My children have told me that over and over. But metaphorical, the idea is, hey, we should welcome, wouldn't everybody want to welcome people who bring good news, right? And if they hear, surely they'll believe. He goes on, he goes, wait a second. Not everybody heeded the good news, obeyed the good news, believed it. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. I don't know if you know what passage he's quoting there from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the clearest prophecy of the coming of a Messiah who would die for the sins, not only of the nation, but of all the world. Isaiah begins it by saying, hey, Lord, who's believed our report? And the idea is, Isaiah says, I'm going to tell you exactly what God is going to do. He's going to send a Messiah who will die for your sins. But you're not going to believe. It's not a a lack of information. It's a lack of faith. Right? So he goes, okay, faith comes by hearing and uh, faith, excuse me, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He goes, "But, but maybe they never heard. He goes, actually, they have. And here he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, right, uh, to the ends of the world. Psalm 19 is this beautiful psalm where the first part of it talks about how God has revealed himself in nature. And then the second half is about how God has revealed himself through the law, that God in creation has made who he is plain. That was Romans 1. But also Psalm 19 says, in the law, God has directly spoken to make plain who he is and how his salvation works so that ignorance is no excuse. God has given more than enough information. And he says, well, maybe Israel got confused, right, because of all this stuff going on with the Gentiles and and how is Jesus the, the Savior now, not only for Jews and Gentiles, and they tripped over that. How could they have known all of that? And that's why he goes on And he quotes Moses again in Deuteronomy 32, and he says, look, God said it. I'll make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I'll anger you. And Isaiah, again, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. In other words, this was always God's plan, that the Messiah would die, the Messiah would rise again and offer salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. It was revealed. It is clear. It is plain. Ignorance is no excuse. And he says, what about Israel? Well, he says, all day long. I've stretched out my hands, not to a group of people who lacked education, but to a group of people who were obstinate and rebellious. Now, keep in mind, Paul himself is an Israelite. Paul is not an anti-Semite. But what is true of the nation of Israel, Paul has already said is true of all humanity, isn't it? Jew and Gentile alike stand condemned because God has revealed himself and revealed himself and revealed himself over and over and over again. His eternal power, his divine nature, who he is, and all he's done in Jesus Christ. God stands and holds out his hands and says, grace is available to all who will trust in Jesus. Ignorance is no excuse. 
no human being will stand before God on the day of judgment and be able to say, I didn't know. You didn't give me enough evidence. You didn't make it clear enough. Because the gospel is clear and it is simple. And God has made it plain that all who believe in Jesus Christ, simply believe in Jesus Christ, can have eternal life for free. You can't earn your way there. You can't be good enough. There's nothing you can do except fall on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Ignorance is no excuse. And so, the, the, the questions that I want to ask us this morning as we process this passage that tells us that everyone is responsible to believe in Jesus, I want to address two groups of people this morning. The first group are those of you that are in the room that still believe that your own works, your own goodness, your own merit can earn you eternal life. Or maybe you just, you haven't believed because you say, you know, you're like, you know, Bertrand Russell. I don't know if you're familiar. He was a a philosopher and writer and a famous atheist from the middle of the 20th century. And he was asked once, hey, what if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and God says, hey, why didn't you believe in me? And his response to the interviewer was, I would say to God, sir, why didn't you give me better evidence? Nobody will have that answer standing before God. And maybe that's where you are this morning as you say, I just, I just need more information. I just need more evidence. Or I want to try to be good enough. So, so the question for you is simply this. What is stopping you from believing? What is it in your heart? What is it in your mind? What is it in your spirit that says, I, I cannot believe, I will not believe? The scripture is plain. There are no excuses. And yet, the scripture is also plain that the grace of God is lavish. God is calling out to say, believe in Jesus, and you can know that you're right with God. If you still have questions about Jesus, come and talk with me. Or write down on one of those cards in in front of you. I'd like to talk with somebody. Give us your number. Give us your email address. We'll call you back. We will will talk with you. But, But if that's you, what is stopping you from believing in Jesus? And if you do know Jesus, what is stopping you from telling someone? If we believe that knowing Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life and that God uses uh not just professional preachers. That's not what Romans 10 is talking about. But God uses men and women like you, like me, to proclaim the message and that God has called us to make disciples of Jesus, to share this good news and help people find Jesus and follow Jesus. Then what is stopping us from telling somebody else, that person in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, who does perhaps throw up these excuses, and perhaps they throw up these excuses in a hostile way. And so we're a little afraid. 
But the scripture this morning would encourage us, press on. Do we share the heart of Paul for those who do not yet know Jesus? Will we pray for them? And will we simply proclaim the message? We cannot control the response of another person. But we can be responsible through the power of the Spirit of God to obey, to go, to share the good news. So what is stopping you from telling someone else this morning? So we're gonna close in prayer. And I just, as we, as we close, and then we'll close in worship in a moment, but as we close in prayer, I wanna just give a minute. And if there's somebody in your life who doesn't know Jesus, that you know you should share the gospel with, just take a moment and pray for that person and pray for wisdom and an opportunity. And then I'll pray and we'll close in song. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. The gospel destroys all of our excuses, and yet it offers to us infinite grace, relationship with you, and eternal life. So Lord, make us faithful to listen to your word and to obey. Father, we praise you that you've given us salvation for free. We pray that we would be ambassadors of that good news to the world around us that needs to know Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.